Hey, this is Alan. This episode is sponsored by Manscaped. You can go to manscaped.com, get 20% off your total purchase order when you use promo code PORCHTALK, all one word, at checkout. That's PORCHTALK, all one word. Alright, so they have uh, several different packages going on right now, such as the Platinum, which will really break you into everything that Manscaped does with the, the Beard Hedger 4.0, the Lawnmower 2.0, the Weed Whacker, uh, the chafing underwear, the ball deodorant. I mean, they've got a little bit of everything. Uh, if you haven't given Manscaped a shot, I do highly recommend them. I've truly enjoyed uh, each of the products they've sent me, most comfortable underwear I've ever used, and uh, the best beard hedger I've ever owned. So if you have not given them a try, ladies, look out for that brother or your man in your life. Go to manscaped.com, use promo code PORCHTALK, get 20% off your total purchase order. That's porch talk, all one word. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome you to Porch Talk. This is your host, Alan. We're in Columbus, Mississippi at Munson Brothers, home of craft beer and great pizza. So I've got Trish Evans here with me. I met her uh, some time ago at the Columbus Arts Council. She was coming in and uh, giving Salem and Shane the scoop on some of the uh, historical facts about some of the buildings and i thought we would talk a little bit about columbus today trish how you doing hey good thanks it's good to be here yeah so uh trish tell me uh how you got so interested in digging up these old bones in columbus (laughs) i grew up here uh and uh storytelling is something that is uh uh an old art form in the south and especially my family and uh i grew up playing in most of the old homes in this town and some of them had people living in them and <clears throat> some of them did not and uh <laughs> we used to uh hang out and climb all over everything i've been on top of every building in town whether i was supposed to or not and i've uh um, been in around and on top of and inside most of the houses in columbus and a lot of the other older buildings and so it just drove a curiosity to know more about them. And, and since I love research, I was always in the courthouse and digging around in old documents and in the library. And so that's kind of where that came from. Yeah, and something that we'll get into a little bit later, like just through some of your research, it it was uh, extra to Columbus, like maybe going down the Macon to find some information on oh, some, yeah. of the, yeah. some of the things because maybe Columbus didn't want to talk about it. Well, yeah. <laughs> a, a murder of a fellow in the 19... 19- about 1982 yeah um started down in macon ended up here going back and forth and i ended up finding documentation that led to looking into court federal court documents um by finding what was not in macon mm-hmm. and which led to looking into newspapers and literally just flipping page after page after page in the uh in the old archives uh up at at the dispatch yeah so uh i wanted to go ahead and plug uh your tiktok uh just for listeners i mean if you wanted to know more about columbus uh you have this lady just walking the streets and stopping at buildings and telling a little bit about the history of that building (laughs) yeah about people and yeah this mississippi girl i don't know 462 or something like i don't know it's got a number after it i don't pay attention to it but um, you can edit that in if you want. But um, mostly I'm, I'm doing research about uh, people and places and stories. and yeah. I mean, even some of the old ghost stories that people have told. And if you, if you believe, then... And just for Columbus, like some of the interesting things, like even the Art Council, that was the original, was it the Alabama Theater? Um, so the, the, the Arts Council... In the back, where you go in and they have the upstairs room, Mm -hmm. that was the Dixie Theater. Dixie, okay. And it was the original Princess Theater. Oh. Yeah, that's where it was originally. And then at some point, uh, I think it's P.W. Mayer owned it, who also owned one of the newspapers in town. So there were, at that point, two newspapers. And then there were eventually three theaters and which grew to four and so there was that became the dixie and then there was the princess and then there was the varsity Hmm. and so um 
the cinema and plays and things were have have, have been an integral part of this community. The the really interesting thing is is that um, the Oddfellows building, which was like you know where Gontai it used to be, uh-huh. okay. So the Oddfellows building burned, and the story is it was a bank in there, and so. Like, they were running out with the bank. Like, a lady ran in and got the bank books, literally, to get the bank books out. Otherwise, people's records would have been lost, right? She did a service. Yes, she did, and so did some other people. And anyways, there's pictures of giant ladders and people just, it was a bucket brigade. Well, that fire, of course, spread out, and then because it was so high, and I believe... That building, the Rosenzweig building, was three stories at that time. And I think Oddfellows was four or five stories. It was much, it was taller than it oh, is. Oh, wow. And uh, so the fire, as it was, as the cinders were blowing and spreading, they were afraid that it was going to get all the way over to the cotton mill, which is... Trotter. Yeah. And then, so, you know, there were people on top of all those roofs trying to put out the fire. And so it did have some damage. And so when they were renovating that space upstairs for the theater that um, that the Columbus Arts Council is using now, that theater space, in between the walls, they found old, old, um, I think it's Tom Mix posters. Huh. Which are the old cowboy movies, like, right, like, I think that's the bridging time between talkies and silent, silent movies. movies. So it's just after. But they're the originals. Wow. Yeah, so Salem has now had those framed and put up in the in the foyer when you go upstairs to that theater space. Well, that makes total sense now. And just along with like Columbus Art Council partnering with the Princess Theater now with uh, showing old films. Uh-huh. Like on Halloween, yeah, yeah. we did some old showings. Yeah. I wonder if that's what inspired it now. <laughs> Possibly. I think so. And, you know, the, the, the downstairs area when I was a kid was a dime store. Oh, wow. And so we used to go in there and buy our bags of popcorn. <laughs> and then they had the little bins where you could buy the penny candy or the, the, the like, you could go buy Jack's, you know, a bag of Jack's for, like, I don't know, like 50 cents or whatever. So, you know, that whole building, has, it's interesting to see how it's all changed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember... Uh, just Columbus from when I was a kid, just 20 years ago. I mean, I remember where the original Walmart was. And yeah. It's, it's moved now. And, uh, yeah, and I, I remember I, when the original Walmart was houses and farms. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, like, thinking, 40, thinking 45 toward the Air Force Base, I was yeah. like, but none of that was Columbus. That was just it, yeah, outside was, of Columbus. Uh-huh, that was county. <laughs> and now look at where it's going. Yep. So I wanted to, does it does it start like just historically with like what you're very proficient in? Would it go back to uh, where we're at with the trotter now and being the cotton gin like during that era? Oh, well, but, you know, that's from the, let's see, the cotton gin came about later. It's not even that, it wasn't even that old. I mean, it burned in the 30s, I believe. And it came about, and then, uh there was like you know this this parking lot across the street that was a that was where they took the cotton the I think that was where they stored the lint and the linseed huh. and then that burned and it, so there's you know we've had fires over and over and over yes, but a like, lot of this stuff came about um, the big production of cotton didn't most of that didn't come along until after the Civil War mainly because of rail. Uh, because up until the Civil War and a little after, most of our traffic went down to Mobile by river, and it depended on the river flooding. Because you couldn't get a bu- you couldn't take a river boat much further north of Columbus. You couldn't go all the way up to Aberdeen unless the river was at flood stage. Because huh. there's too many sandbars and and turns and whatever, and so they depended on on the flood seasons to take the cotton to market. Okay. And so uh, a lot of the operations weren't that huge because if you think about it, how many bales of cotton could fit on a boat? Right. And so, and those boats would be down to the water line. You know, if you had 500 bales of cotton or 400, 250, whatever. And so, and a lot of it was uh, 
you know, after the Civil War, there was no labor, and then they had to go to, uh, you know, they, they used sharecroppers and tenant farmers in the production. And because of during the Civil War, I know this is kind of just a, you know, a rapid-fire short synopsis that's not so short. Um, that's, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but essentially during the Civil War, England was our one of our largest consumers of our cotton and New England, but the mills in England needed cotton and we were too busy fighting a war. So there was no cotton for the, and there were, you know, blockades. And so our cotton couldn't get out of the South. So they had to start looking for other sources of cotton. And so that was India. Oh, wow. And so India and Egypt and et cetera, et cetera. So, the demand for cotton, for our cotton, went down. And so the cotton market changed, and so many things changed. So they had to change how they did business because they didn't have the labor supply of enslaved labor. They didn't, you know, they didn't have the market to go to that they had had to go to. So things had to shift and change, and they had to get more cost efficient. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot of what, where all of that where a lot of that infrastructure suddenly got built was to meet that market change. Okay. So, uh, I mean, we know the Trotter uh, today as we just rented it out to do a, a boxing event. It's been used for music events, different events uh, throughout time. That used to be the gin, right? Well, the, the building, that whole, the back of that, all of that. Okay, from like, what? The other side of Catfish Alley to Main Street? Not quite. So, so, so like, the bank building, it would have butted up to the back of that bank building. Okay. So it would have taken up a large portion of that. And the, some of the overflow, like, would be here. Some of the associated industries and warehouses. You had to have huge warehouses. And one of the warehouses that burned was, you know, that parking lot that's across the street from um, Catfish Alley? Yes. That was, uh, there was a big warehouse there, and that burned. As a matter of fact, some firemen were killed in that fire, in a big fire there. Were these uh, fires at that time, were they on purpose, or it was just? No, um, so cotton's highly flammable. I mean, right. uh, static electricity would cause the lint to ignite. I mean, it was very dangerous working in these mills. And they were also still using coal oil in a lot of places, and kerosene, lanterns. Um, they think... Possibly one of the theories I've heard was um, the night watchman that some he that somebody left a kerosene lantern lit and the the lint you know it just caused enough of a combustion that it was just caused a chain reaction and that actually burned for days Jeez. days so. Yeah, it seems like, uh, just from our last conversation before, it seems like there's not many uh, places in downtown Columbus that we know now that haven't caught fire. Yeah, <laughs> and it's really interesting that fire was a huge problem, a huge problem, mm -hmm. and it was a great fear. And that we actually are, you know, the antique pumper that's in the, um, over by the fire firehouse on 7th. On oh, yeah. 7th, that's actually, I think that's actually the very first um, fire engine in Columbus. Oh, wow. Yeah. What about uh, with the Antebellum Homes and uh, the event that's upcoming for these downtown homes? Uh, what's the, what's some of the histories of uh, those places? Um, let's see. There's the Whitfield Home, which is also called Snowden. Snowden is on 3rd North. And apparently Jefferson Davis was friends with the Whitfields. Whitfield was one of the governors uh, of Mississippi and a very well-to-do man. He actually bought the house across the street that was that's now called Baskerville Manor. It used to be called Hamilton Hall. And that was built for his sons. That was a wedding present for his son. So the two families lived across the street from each other. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Baskerville Manor, actually the back building, used, it used to be a um, uh, stagecoach stop. Oh. And the the horses they you know they come down Military Road, Andrew Jackson Highway and trade out horses. Well, that went out of 
style essentially i guess and with the uh, train travel and river travel so uh the home that that piece of property the front part part of the property did not have a, a an actual standing building and that's why he bought that and built his son that beautiful brick home there yeah and so the house across the street of course is kind of got a got a concave it's got a it's got an ellipse that you can you could drive a carriage in back in the day and it had a great big um, overhanging balcony so Jefferson Davis was visiting for some reason and Columbus was the capital of the Confederacy at one point for I don't know a hot minute and so it seemed like that swapped around a lot it was Natchez at some point it, yeah a lot of it was health close Grant and Sheridan and Sherman mm-hmm. and a few other generals were on their tail but um, anyways, Davis was in his, well, they found out he was there, the people of the town, he was so popular, they came down and they, by torchlight, and they all stood there and he went out in his nightshirt. Well, and you think about it, a nightshirt at that time, we, we laugh and we go, yeah, well, you know, he put on his nightshirt and he, you know, he's gone to bed. Actually, no, a man's shirt that he wore was long and it would double as their nightshirt. Because when you travel, you you know by horseback you can only carry so much. Mm-hmm. So they had inter- they would put collars on those shirts and a tie. Oh yeah. And so your nightshirt was just something you, a shirt you wore. You slept in it. You dressed it up when you went out. And yeah, I remember when we were. It was this is elementary school. I went to South Lamar. Mm-hmm. They would bring us over, and I always liked that. And I didn't know how accurate some of the people were were portraying it, but. I like going through those homes and like seeing the people kind of dressed up and mm-hmm. uh, you know whatever time period that would have been. I, and I, I guess it really depends on what they're trying to tell. Well, and some of it probably is. I mean, it's over dramatized. Like the average person wouldn't have had all that heavy furniture, all those tchotchkes in there. You know, the the ceramic and the you know the 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 fancy. Um, candelabras and all. They wouldn't have had those out all the time. Mm-hmm. One or two houses, maybe, but most of them, the ho- those homes were lived in and very sooty. And if they didn't have a detached kitchen that they would cook in their dining rooms, you know, on those big fireplaces. So you wouldn't, ha- you wouldn't have all that stuff. It would get broken. It would get, you know, knocked over. So a lot of the houses have period items in them that would be appropriate and they may have been owned at one time by the people in those homes but uh, you know you, you have to take it with a grain of salt how that how they probably were more austere homes than what you perceive yeah because life wasn't easy then i mean if you think about it or wear a hoop skirt and and crinolines and all that stuff and go out to the outhouse or use a chamber pot a whole process yeah it's a whole process so <laughs> you know it, it i don't think it was as pretty and clean as it's we made can, out to be yeah i mean they're beautiful homes and i think they're done well and i think they're the time is expressed well but i don't know that it's actually that accurate to how to daily life right. in those homes yeah, I'm just trying to put myself in that mindset, like what would a day in life look like that? I mean, I imagine it had to be uh, hard because we, we have it so easy now with technology. Yeah, and and even if they had enslaved people in their homes, there was still, it would have been horrible to have been that person, the enslaved person, because they did the the least of the savory stuff. You know, their their lives were horrible yeah that kind of reminds me like of where alec is now his stepfather the uh yeah yeah the, the ex- old slave quarters yeah yeah he's in the old cow ca- in the old cabins yeah and those are kind of generous compared to some i've, I've seen but when you know it's this um it wasn't glamorous yeah. let's just put it that way all right uh tell me about sandfield <laughs> Sandfield is the oldest African-American cemetery in Columbus, Mississippi. It was actually established, uh, the piece of land was owned by a guy named Aiken. I believe that's right. I just 
Irvin, excuse me, Eakin, Irvin, and he had this vision that it should be as elaborate and a twin almost to Friendship Cemetery because it just, it was designed to be that way. And uh, it was supposed to be, whoo, twice the size of what it is now. So now it's about 10.4 acres Mm -hmm. and it was supposed to be about 20 acres and um, various reasons, pieces of it were sold off or didn't, yeah, didn't come to fruition. Encroaching. Well, now the businesses are encroaching. But so he sold the property to the city. Um, in the eighteen fifties, I think eighteen fifty four. Hold me to that because I can't remember exactly. But he sold it to the city, and this that became. Uh, the African-American cemetery, because there wasn't what they would have called the colored cemetery at that time. We had Friendship Cemetery, which was all white, and then, and that was owned by the, uh, the, it's owned by the city now, but it was the International Order of Oddfellows. So that's why the front part of uh, Friendship is concentric rings that hang uh, hang over each other, because it's the Oddfellows symbol. Yeah. Um, Starkville has an odd fellow, uh-huh. too. So, Sandfield was supposed to be like a spoken hub. So, it was supposed to have like, it was it was supposed to have a center round area that would have had like a giant, um, essentially a bandstand, and which was very common. People had picnics and celebrations in cemeteries back in the day. It yeah. wasn't this morose place that we have it, you know, that we think of them today. Right. And so they had, you know, these there was like spokes off of that, and so they could have brought the car- the funeral carriages in to deliver the dead on on wagons, essentially hearses and wagons of the time, and they were supposed to be wide enough to have to have like two horses or two mules wide, and you kind of can see that when you go out there, especially in the hot, dry months when the grass has kind of died back and you can actually see the paths. Um, but it's full. And a lot of people don't realize that because so many there's so many headstones that are now gone or broken and knocked over. But then there's a lot of people in there who never had a headstone for various reasons. And a lot of it's poverty. Yeah. Uh, I believe the oldest headstone in there is it's an it's an enslaved woman, and her name was Mary. And people have attributed it to her name as Barry, Mary Baskerville, but that's not her last name. She actually was a servant for a Colonel Charles Baskerville, and he's buried over in Friendship. Oh, wow. Um, but, um, and he was very uh, prominent in the Episcopal Church here at St. Paul's. He was one of the one of the largest um, people who donated to build to build the Episcopal Church back in the day. But she's, we think she's the first person that's buried out there. And if not the first, she's, a, she's the earliest headstone out there. Oh, wow. And she's buried at the back of um, Isaac Wash- uh, W. Isaac Washington's family plot, which is interesting because he was a school teacher here. And no one's really sure if that head, if she's really buried there or if her headstone was just erected there. That's, I mean, that's crazy. Uh, there's blues markers all over the state of Mississippi. Columbus happens to be home to one, Catfish Alley. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not in the right place. Well, it's not really on Catfish Alley. It's on the corner. It's, on, it, it's, it's in front of used to be a, a, a white attorney's office and before that it was a an A&P it was a or a, a corner market and it's across from the white Episcopal Church in town <laughs> yeah um, but that's very typical um, most many of the blues markers are not in front of black owned businesses or even the actual site where they actually belong so for example down in the Delta, mm-hmm. in Carroll County, 
Um, Mississippi John Hurt was a very prominent musician who played at the Newport Blues Festival, and uh, he recorded a, a whole bunch of songs in the 60s. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 60s and 70s. And um, he's quite he's quite well-renowned in the... Um, in a lot of the... What I would call country blues. You know, some people call it folk blues era. Well... Uh, his sign is up against the country in front of a... You can't even read the part that's about John Hurt himself because it yeah. doesn't face the road. It faces the country. And it's in front of a store that he never played at. They make it sound like he played at the Valley Grocery Store. Never would have, never could have because he was of the wrong color and would have been run off. So... It's just, why it's there is beyond me. It's not in Avalon. It's not near the place where his where his actual home was down, you know. It's not near Teoc where he's buried. It's a, it's about a mile, I would say half mile to a mile from where he's buried. Yeah, it's like even with the uh, Robert Johnson, with that marker, like marking the crossroad and the, the story of that. And which crossroad? There's Exactly. It's not even at the, the right crossroad. <laughs> Which one is the right crossroads? That's another good question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of people made a lot of money off of Robert Johnson, with the ex- except for his descendants. Yeah. And it's the same thing with John Hurt. A lot of people make a lot of money off of John, Mississippi John Hurt. The family doesn't even own the images. They cannot sell even, like, an image of him. Mm-hmm. And I, I think about, uh, which I've, I've been able to interview some of these blues musicians, like Jimmy Duck, he was... Uh, mm-hmm. He was fairly reserved when it came to playing on the record. He didn't mind talking about the uh, how his, his parents founded the Blue Front Cafe mm-hmm. and the, the history of it. But when it came to, uh, well, give me a little taste of the Bentonian Blues, fairly reserved because mm-hmm. he had been ripped off by so many journalists mm-hmm. and reporters. And uh, we think about uh, mixed feelings on Fat Possum Records. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for Fat Possum, would we be celebrating Cedric Burnside and some of these people if someone hadn't gone mm-hmm. and recorded them. And then, well, now we say, well, his descendants and even himself didn't make any money practically mm-hmm. off of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he's known now, but two, taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. Of Catfish Alley, Columbus, is, is, is there a, a true history of the blues here in this town? Well, you know, the song Catfish Alley uh, depends on who you want to attribute the lyrics to. But we know the tune is nothing original. That tune has been used by a bunch of different songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and Catfish Alley's not the first version of it. But that was kind of the nature of the blues. They took a lot of a lot of songs like, you know, uh, what is it, Death Letter Blues? That's got a whole bunch of different verses and a whole different bunch of different versions to it. Yeah. So, you know, Chicken or the Egg? The music was first, the lyrics came about, but, you know, the interesting, the more interesting thing is, is what it's based on, and, and the fact that uh, Catfish Alley was, you know, a place in my childhood where it was a, it was black-owned businesses, that's where the um, uh, African-American doctors were, and dentists um, who had been in that area for, you know, a long time. And 
there were businesses down, you know, downstairs on the ground level. There was, you know, restaurants, and it was a thriving community. Um, and as a kid, we used to go there and buy our catfish. You know, you go, I'd go get buy catfish plates and carry them home on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would put out these big braziers. Now, I knew that I was not supposed to go to Catfish Alley in the evenings because there'd be drinking and music and stuff going on, and you know, yeah, kids just you just didn't go into adult spaces. So it was not about race; it was just about it was an adult space, right? Yeah, I get I get to thinking about a juke joint and like what makes a juke joint, and it's, it's kind of what I think about when I hear stories about Catfish Alley yeah. at night. Yeah, and it was, you know, but there were several different vibrant black communities in Columbus. It was made up of lots of them. Sandfield was homeowners, and uh, a lot of people worked on the railroad or worked in the garment factories, because there was a Sansabelt factory and some stuff like that behind there. And, um, you know, different jobs that, you know, they were building community. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you had uh, over by Union Academy, the north side of town, which was probably the second oldest black community in Columbus, maybe the third oldest. And that was a vibrant community, and it had the Queen City Hotel, it had grocery stores, it had hairdressers, it had barbershops, it had, you know, it had its own, it had little corner grocery stores. So that was a very vibrant community, and those people that lived in that community, a lot of them worked on the railroad, and they worked in the brickyard, so they worked for Puckett's. Mm-hmm. What's now the Puckett Brickyard, and so, uh, uh, and then a lot of the people who lived down here in Burns Bottom, a lot of them worked at the cotton mill mm-hmm. or in the businesses downtown, and then in between and in the south side of town, when you go across the railroad track, it was the same thing. They worked in, uh, they were draymen. They worked in the livery stables. They, they were oilmen on, you know, for the different factories and night watchmen. And, you know, they had jobs where a lot of them walked to work. Mm-hmm. And now Burns Bottom is not even recognizable to what it, it used to be. It doesn't exist. It's gone. And, you yeah. know, and I, there's a lot of mixed feeling about that, that, you know, oh, well, a lot of it was empty and, you know, it floods. Like, it still floods. I don't care. Right, but you we know, have a soccer field now. Yeah, but now they want to build. There's a big thing down here that says they're going to build mixed condos down here, mixed size condos, mixed community. Well, I thought we took everything out of there because it flooded. So what's what's the story? Mm-hmm. Are we doing urban renewal or? You know, it's like there were a lot of people who lived there for generations, mm-hmm. and they're gone. You know, and then the. I always talk about it. You know, we talk about historic preservation. Wasn't that historic? Burns Bottom was very historic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, the the I mean, only thing that we do now is little festivals that we throw maybe once a month to preserve it. And I, I had no idea that it was called Burns Bottom or Frog Bottom. It was Bottom named or, after a, a house. Burns is the, that was an was a antebellum home up here. And it was for sale for next to nothing. And nobody wanted it. Is that the one right there? Is, is it gone now? It's gone now. Okay. I, they just, I, they I tore it down. I didn't know if it was down. that one right by Zachary's. Uh, no, it was. around that? No, no, no. It was, it, was, oh. it was just right over here on the hill. Oh, okay. That way. Sorry. Okay. Um, And it was torn down because they had it for sale for nothing. I mean, it would have taken hundreds of thousands to fix it. Yeah. But here are all these people around here screaming historic preservation, and, and it got torn down. They didn't want to preserve that. Nobody wanted to preserve it. Nobody wanted to put their money where their mouth is. And so, you know, we have all these historic preservation groups in the community. And, you know, they, they, it's almost as if it, it gives, you know, it, it kind of makes, it, it, it's like people go, well, we want to do this, we want to do that. I'm like, well, do it then. Quit talking about it and do it. Mm-hmm. And I think there are very few people who are actually doing it. I, I wish it was different. And, and I know there's the whole, well, we don't have any money. I'm like, I don't have any money either. And I went out and wrote a grant with the organization I work with, and we're trying to preserve the history of a, of a place. A lot of that's focused on the sand field at this moment, right? What I, well, that and uh, collecting all the locations of African-American churches and um, 
cemeteries in Lowndes County. It's a three count. We've got three counties at the beginning of it. And created an ArcGIS, which is uh, a mapping system where individuals can add eventually stories, pictures, histories. Um, but you can locate where actual African American cemeteries are because they're being lost. I mean, Sandfield's been encroached well upon. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like last we spoke, I mean, even uh, the grave sites of some of the bluesmen uh, throughout Mississippi, like my mind goes to Crawford. Mm-hmm. Uh, Big and, Joe Williams, he's yeah. out in the middle of a cow field, literally. Yeah. And even where his blues marker is, is not in the right place. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah but part of it's because his, I don't know, and maybe the descendants who own the property didn't want the marker. I don't know the story of his marker, but it okay. is, it's out on a highway, on an alternate highway that no one uses. Right. And Which, in, yeah, Crawford is... You know, it's becoming like Sugar Lock or a lot of these towns just yeah. outside of the Delta to where it's, it's there's no industry, it's forgotten. Mm, it's blowing away. It's drying up and blowing away. You know, and, and so there's not even directions how to get to, to Big Joe Williams' grave. Right. It's a country road, but he deserves to be known. Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the lynchings. Uh, there's a lot more that happened here than what's reported. Mm-hmm. We actually had, um, we were second <laughs> in the state. One of the things we can be so not proud of, um, we were second to Hines County for the largest number of lynchings between Reconstruction and uh, just after the Civil Rights era. So we have some lynchings that are from as early as 1880s up until late 1930s, early 1940s, and possibly beyond. But those are the ones that I've definitely isolated through uh, inquest records at the courthouse and uh, news articles and then interviews with descendants. Yeah, I wanted to focus on uh, one specific story. With uh, It would have been down on the south side by the railroad track. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you mind telling that story? Billy Calhoun? hmm So Billy Calhoun uh, was a flagman for the railroad, and as a flagman, he had a home. The railroad provided him a house. hmm So that's pretty nice. If you go down, you go right past, you go right across below, uh, um, right below where the Marble Works, the old Marble Works building is. Okay. That's 4th Street, and you're going south, like you're going to the Friendship Cemetery. That was called St. John Street at the time. But it's 4th and about 9th, which is like the next avenue just past the, parallels the railroad track. And there's a, there's a pretty little yellow Victorian house there. And that was built by the railroad for railroad employees. And so Billy lived there with his wife and his daughter and his stepchildren. His wife had two children from a previous marriage. And he had an older son as well. So they're all living there, mm-hmm. and he got in an argument with his coworkers uh, over him working at the as a flagman at one of the favored um, cross, crossings of the railroad. And so the guy he got in an argument with had gone to to Billy's boss and said, "You know, black man shouldn't have such a nice job and have his house provided for him." And this white guy was not happy because he was a uh, he, he, his job was just working on the rails and, and running a, a crew. Mm-hmm. And so he kept complaining, kept complaining, and his boss was like, I'm not going to do anything. It's actually probably one of the best employees I've ever had. So the next week, uh, the guy, there was somebody jumped Billy and cut his throat and dumped his body over below what's now Carrier Chapel. At that time, there was a chair factory in that area, a furniture factory, and his body was found by his stepson and two other men who were their neighbors. They were looking for him. And were looking for him. An inquest was held. It was determined that he was murdered, possibly for his pay, by persons or person or persons unknown. So... Yeah, friendly city, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> and his family has always said they're they're the descendants have always said that he was lynched. Now lynching doesn't mean hanging. Right. Always. Okay. You know, just for clarity's sake. A lot yeah. of people think that means you have to be hung to be Right, it can be you yeah. can be beat to death. <laughs> Another guy uh was was uh beat to death for almost <coughs> the same thing. Possibly was the same person. Jeez. A few years later I gotta remember his name. The guy's name who was killed, I think, is Will Matthews. And his last name's Matthews. He lived right across the street from Palmer Home. The or- and that was an orphanage then. It was called Palmer Orphanage. Um, and he also worked on the railroad in a prize, pos- in a prize position. Hmm. And they know who killed him. And I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head. There was an inquest held. He was investigated. But what happened was these men came to the guy's house... He'd been in an argument with him at work. He tried to go to the op boss and say that he wanted his job, he wanted his house, blah, blah, blah. And he, they had their argument. And on late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, these men came to the door, knocked on the door. His wife wouldn't open the door. He tried to go out the back. The men came, heard him going out the back, went around back, shot him and killed him. Jeez. And an inquest was held. The one guy was identified. He he identified as the one who killed him. He never confessed. And the 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 man's wife, the man that was killed, his wife. So I never saw his face. I couldn't. I couldn't tell. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. Well, uh, patrons are beginning to come in. I wanted to ask three more questions, and we'll wrap this up. Okay. Of. the organizations, I don't know if you would like to share uh, who you're working with, but is there ways that people could uh, give or get more information? Yes, I work for the Mount Zion Memorial Fund. We're uh, mountzionmemorialfund.org or .com. You can look us up either way. Uh, .com is the easiest one. Uh, we are currently uh, running a GoFundMe to rescue the last uh, existing true juke joint first generation juke joint uh owned by alonzo chapman down in Glen allen mississippi and it's currently owned by ollie morganfield who is muddy waters nephew how about that and we're well, at least it stayed in the family yeah and so we're trying to uh we're trying to to raise enough funds to put it on the national historic register so that we can get some grants and help him do a proper restoration but he's he's been doing everything he can slowly but surely yeah and they're still playing music there awesome uh question two it kind of it'll when we have time to get back together i wanted to focus a a whole episode on just the blues but okay uh, in with columbus and the blues we talked a little bit about catfish alley but uh are there any more like memorable figures who may have passed through here uh during during that Whew, time you put me on the spot i i mean there were actually <laughs> yeah. uh now that if i if i could think of them that's another story um you know they they this columbus has always been on the on the map and a lot of there were quite a few uh places that blues artists would actually come and play they were you know they played queen city they also played at white venues here in town so um you know they heck there were some really great soul bands and and all kinds of um, early uh, black music came through town. Uh, there was a place across the street, just over there off of Main Street. Mm-hmm. It was called the Chisholm Trail. And my folks, I mean, it was like a supper club. And my folks would go and listen to Big Joe Williams. And, uh, uh, oh God, there was a Big Bull Moose. Uh, God, I can't think of his name, the, the musician's name. But uh, there were there were a lot of, of first rate um, blues artists that would come to Columbus and play gigs, mm-hmm. and they would play in multiple places. Like they would play like they played the early seating at like maybe the Chisholm Trail, and then they'd play from six to ten, mm-hmm. and then they'd pack up, and then they'd go to maybe the Queen City or someplace else. Yeah, and they would play, you know, they would play like the Silver Spur maybe from. 11 to 1 in the morning. <laughs> doing uh, 
two shows. In yeah, one and that was, but that was the life of a musician back then. Oh yeah, I know. Uh, just uh, one guy who's kind of helping me map out uh, Black Prairie music. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Those guys, when it was getting started, it was it was a little bit different uh, than it was in Mississippi. Uh, they would travel by train. Uh huh. And so they would uh, from Mobile up to Black Prairie, mm-hmm. and then over into Meridian mm-hmm. and into the Delta, and that was how their mm-hmm. music traveled. So it's it's kind of exciting to see how uh, just even the blues, like just how music uh, traveled and how mm-hmm. it influenced. And you have rock and roll and uh, from Mississippi blues to Chicago blues mm-hmm. to it being uh, whitewashed down mm-hmm. in Texas. The Kansas blues, Kansas mm-hmm. City blues, yeah. So it's, it's, it's always kind of interesting to track. Uh-huh. Uh, last question. Um, what was... Um, Favorite, favorite memories uh, growing up here in Columbus. Like you mentioned, like getting on every rooftop and. Uh, <laughs> well, my favorite thing to do, honest to goodness, two things. Um, the rivers always played a big part in in our lives here. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were kids. We used to go down. I used to, so I, I would follow the bigger kids down. Mostly it was, it was, uh, it was like David and Mark Evans and Rice Rice Glover and. You know some of the some of the bigger kids that were in the neighborhood. We all lived on Third. I mean, all of it, it was like straight stretch, and we'd go straight down to the bottom of Third to the boat launch, and then cut right. And there was a big there was a big hill, and you there was a rope swing, and we oh, would man. and we would swing out on that rope swing hours and hours, and then <laughs> you'd have to climb up the clay bank, and that was you know that that took more exercise than the rope. Oh yeah. And then the other thing was we used to go down to past Carrier Chapel. There used to be a railroad bridge, <laughs> the trestle. And we'd walk out on the trestle and jump out in the river. It's a wonder we don't have tetanus. It's a wonder we didn't jump on a, you know, some submerged lo- God only knows what, how, we, we, used how to, we survived. We used to jump off bridges here in town. And then uh, the one over on the east side, close to uh, John's Daily. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, years later, after we had been jumped off that bridge there a million times times, yeah uh some old timer was like don't jump off that bridge because uh they threw the old railroad ties or down below there yeah exactly and i was like we could have been skewered Uh (laughs) uh-huh or stuck you know get get trapped down there so like i said i always wonder you know the uh the other thing is you know we were never allowed to go nice kids didn't go to bob's Uh which was across the river um, the old river bridge, and so uh, we were. For, my folks forbade us from going to, to to Bob's, but they never said you can't go to Bob's. What they said was you're not allowed to drive across the bridge. Well, that's a challenge. <laughs> so we used to pirogue across. You can't, <laughs> across. Dr- you can't drive. I can't drive. I'm not drive. I didn't drive across that bridge. I didn't uh-huh. go across that bridge. My mama would say. Don't you go across that bridge? Yes, ma'am. I'm not going across that no bridge. Problem. No would, problem. I, I just pirogued across and <laughs> climbed up the bank and went went up to. <laughs> went up to Bob's. Not like there was anything there we wanted, anyways. It, you know, that was the thrill of it, right? Yeah, it was just breaking the rules. Hamburgers and French fries, and you know, <laughs> it was just. But we weren't allowed to cross the bridge. Well, cool. Well, Trish, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Thank you.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.